Does prayer change God? Embedded in that question lies the tension between God's sovereignty over human activity versus humans' activity's ability to affect the sovereignty of God. Does prayer change God? It seems to me that the Bible affirms both the sovereignty of God and human activity. In Malachi chapter 3, it is the Lord who says, I, the Lord, do not change. Yet in Hosea chapter 11, God responds to his prophet by saying, my heart within me is changed. My compassion is stirred. I will not devastate you. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, as he is affirming the sovereignty of God, he says, your father knows what you need before you even ask him. And James says in James chapter 4, you have not because you've asked not. In Exodus chapter 32, after the golden calf debacle, it is the Lord who says to his servant Moses, now leave me so my fierce anger may burn against my people and I may destroy them. And Moses responds, interceding on behalf of the people, pleading in passionate prayer. And later in that same chapter of Exodus chapter 32, we read the Lord relented and did not send the calamity upon his people that he had threatened. Does prayer change God? If the answer is a resounding no, that prayer in no way changes God, then we stand with theologians like Immanuel Kant, who says it is absurd, presumptuous even, to think that the prayers of sinful men and women can deflect the will of God. I must confess to you that I understand and largely agree with the sentiment of that statement. Yet there's someone who will raise the question, if everything is irrevocably set, then why pray? If everything is predetermined and if God is not affected by prayers, then why pray? Why do we pray asking God to heal our brother from cancer? or help our sister to successfully come through heart surgery. If prayers do not affect God, then why do we pray asking God to help us with the history exam, or help us with the interview to land the lucrative job of our dreams, or if prayers don't really affect God, then why do we pray for our darling granddaughter who's a newborn, premature, and struggling for life in the hospital? Does prayer change God. If the answer is a resounding yes, that yes, uh, prayers do change God, then we stand with theologians like Clark Pinnock, who once wrote that God changes in response to the request of his children. And someone would think to themselves, well, if we push that statement to its logical conclusion, then you and I need to be open theists. 
which I don't think any of us actually are. An open theist says that God is learning as he goes. He is evolving. He doesn't know the future as certainly as he knows the past because he's waiting to make cosmic decisions based upon your prayers. And I, for one, do not need a God nor read of a God who needs to make cosmic decisions based on the whimsical, flimsy prayers of frail, fickle followers like you and like me. I don't need for God to give me what I want. I need for God to give me what he wants me to have. And there are moments when I can be faithful unto the Lord and the very next moment be a failure. I don't need to tell the holy God how to respond to a crisis or a situation. So does prayer change God? If the answer cannot be found in the extremes of a resounding no or a resounding yes, for both of them are quite problematic, if the answer is not found in the extremes, maybe the answer is found somewhere in the middle. Maybe the answer to this question is not an either or. Maybe the answer is a both and. This past week, as I have been wrestling with this question, this is the statement that's been building in my mind and heart for God, who is changelessly sovereign is genuinely affected by the prayers of his children according to his great mercy. Yes, our God who is changelessly sovereign is genuinely affected by the prayers of his children according to his great mercy. A great example of this can be found in Isaiah chapter 38. It's that passage I invite you to turn your attention this morning. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand and reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Today we continue in our study entitled, I Pray. And we focus on Isaiah chapter 38, verses 1 to 8. Isaiah 38, verses 1 to 8. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amaz, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order, because you're about to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully, and with wholehearted devotion have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father, David says. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. I'll deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back the 10 steps that's gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So the sunlight went back the 10 steps it had gone down. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God, you may be seated. The story I just read for you is recorded in three places in sacred script. We find it in 2 Kings chapter 20, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and here in Isaiah chapter 38. Hezekiah is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He rules and reigns during the divided days with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Hezekiah was a good king, 
We read that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his forefather, David. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He was one of those millennials, yet he was one of those responsible millennials. He took the throne when he was only 25 years of age. He ruled for 29 years. Somewhere in the 14th year of his reign, Hezekiah grew sick. Isaiah the prophet doesn't tell us the exact sickness of Hezekiah. But the other stories uh, tell us that the remedy was that they took a poultice of figs and applied it to the boil. I take that to mean that Hezekiah had some type of skin disease, maybe even the early onslaught of leprosy. In the ancient world, leprosy was the dreaded disease. In our day and time, nobody wants to hear the doctor say the dreaded C word, cancer. In the days of the Bible, nobody wanted to hear the dreaded L word, leprosy. And in all likelihood, Hezekiah is beginning to have the early signs of leprosy, some type of skin disease. He's sick. I don't know if he calls for the prophet, but the prophet comes to him, gains an audience with the king, and King Hezekiah welcomes Isaiah. This is not the first time Isaiah had ever made his way to the palace steps. Not the first time he had gained an audience with that great king. Hezekiah and Isaiah were on first name basis. Numerous times Isaiah would walk in and say, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says for you to do or not do. Hezekiah was always eager to welcome Isaiah. On this day, Isaiah walks in and his face is downcast. His demeanor is distraught. The king looks at him and says, what brings you here, mighty prophet? Isaiah says, king, I don't know how to tell you this, but I got a word from the Lord that I need to give you. Well, go ahead, tell me, what does God say? King, the word of the Lord has come to me saying that you need to get your house in order You're going to die. You will not recover. Friends, this is a sucker punch. I mean, this is a gut check. At this time in his life, Hezekiah is only 39 years old. And that's young. It's getting younger by the day, I'll tell you that much. That's young. Hezekiah is not thinking about death. And here, he thinks to himself, I I know I'm sick, but I didn't know I was that sick. For the prophet to tell the king, get your house in order. What he's communicating is that you need to appoint your successor. You need to draft your last will and testament. If you've got family and friends that you want to see and speak to before you pass, now's the time to do it. Get your house in order. Hezekiah hadn't thought about a successor. He's 39 years old. He's not thinking about death. He's not thinking about his final days. He's not, he's not even anticipating who his successor might be. The truth of the matter is, when Hezekiah eventually does die at the age of 54, his successor is his son Manasseh. And we are told that Manasseh takes the throne when Manasseh is 12 years old. So by the time of our story, Manasseh's not even born yet. He doesn't even know who his successor is going to be. Yet Isaiah tells him, 
You need to get your house in order. You need to appoint your successor. You need to get everything organized and ready for a smooth transition for the very next king. And in response to this sovereign set decree of the Lord, Hezekiah turns his head towards the wall and he prays. That's, That's remarkable, isn't it? God didn't stutter. It wasn't like it was foggy or confusing. It's not like Hezekiah could go to God and say, God, what do you mean by that? That I'm, I'm not going to live. What, what does that mean? Does that, what? No, it's, it's very clear. Hezekiah, you're going to die. You will not recover. God cannot be any plainer. This is crystal clear. And yet the king prays. He received a a sovereign set decree. This is what the Lord says. And in response, he prays. Why does he pray? He prays because he knows God to be changelessly sovereign and genuinely affected by the prayers of his children according to his great mercy. Oh God, remember how I have faithfully walked before you I have had wholehearted devotion. I have done what is good and right in your sight. Hezekiah is not being arrogant when he offers his prayer. He's being accurate. Because what he says is precisely what he had been doing for the last 14 years. When Hezekiah became king of the southern kingdom of Judah and he took the throne right there in Jerusalem, he followed his father and his father Ahaz was a pathetic king. When Hezekiah went to the throne. The religious life of the nation was in shambles. So the first thing Hezekiah did is that he ordered for the temple to be consecrated. He said, I want to rededicate this thing because everybody's been lazy. The the priests have been pathetic. They've been negligent on their job. So the first thing he wanted to do was to consecrate every utensil, every room, every table, every piece of furniture. It took the priest 16 days to consecrate and cleanse the temple. That's some deep cleaning, isn't it? 16 days were required. After that was done, they had a worship service. And in that worship service, they offered up 600 bulls and 3,000 goats. The nation truly worshiped the Lord. They worshiped him in song and scripture and in sacrifice. Following that, Hezekiah said, we need to reinstitute the Passover. The Passover had been neglected for years. It's not that individuals didn't observe the Passover, but from the top down, there was just complete negligence of the Passover. So even though it wasn't technically the right time for Passover, Hezekiah said, we are gonna get this thing started off right. We're gonna have Passover. He invited his friends and families to the North Israel to come and they all gathered for worship. Now, typically the Passover would last seven days. Yet when Hezekiah did this, it lasted 14 days sweeping revival. People would not go home. I mean, the seventh day had come and gone and Hezekiah said, what do you want to do? We want to keep on worshiping the Lord. And so they did it for a whole nother week. Genuine, real revival. In response to that, we are told that Hezekiah tore down the high places. He smashed the sacred stones. He cut down the Asherah poles. All of those are symbols and images of paganism and sensual, sexual idolatry. All those places where 
God-forsaken places, vile things were done in the name of religion. And Hezekiah went and he took down all those pagan high places, smashed their tools and instruments of sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. We're even told in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, that Hezekiah smashed that bronze serpent because they had been burning incense to it. You remember the story of that bronze serpent? Oh, 700 years ago, when Moses was leading the people out of their Egyptian captivity, those Israelites began to complain against their leader, Moses. Now, Moses didn't like it, and God didn't take too kindly to it either, so he sent fiery serpents among the camp. If anyone there was bitten by one of those fiery serpents, they were certain to die. It didn't take them very long to say, okay, maybe we've overreacted. And Moses, can you please go on our behalf before the Lord and just ask him to forgive us? Moses goes on their behalf to God and God says, Moses, I want you to fashion a bronze serpent. I want you to set it on a pole. I want you to place it in the middle of camp. And anybody who's been bitten, if they look up in faith, they will be healed. And what you know it, there are many people who looked up in faith and, and they were healed. Other people refused that divine healing and they died and perished. Well, when camp broke, somebody had the bright idea, hey, we need to keep track of that bronze serpent. That's a good snake. That's a good snake. It's, it's really served us well. So for 700 years, they kept that snake. For 700 years. Let's think about that. America is 241 years old. That's nearly three times the age of America. That's how long some committee had been formed to keep that dreaded snake. Somebody had been in charge of housing that snake, keeping that snake. I'm sure they made a plaque for that snake. They probably encased it in glass. They probably put it in a prominent place for everybody to see. I can well imagine that there was a business meeting where somebody had the idea that we need to change the carpet around that snake and you would have thought they would have said that the Messiah is not coming. I mean, there was division that broke out because they loved that snake. That was a good snake. That was a helpful snake. And they worshiped that snake. They began to burn incense to it. And Hezekiah came along with enough conviction that he said, we're going to smash that snake. We're going to get rid of that dreaded idol. Friends, whenever revival genuinely takes place, idols always fall. Whenever real revival takes place in your heart, in my life, idols always fall. That's what happens in this time in history in the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah is a good king. He's bringing down the high places. He's smashing the sacred stones. He's cutting down the Asherah poles. People are worshiping for two weeks in a row for Passover. They are having tremendous worship under the Lord. He's even destroying the sacred snake. Hezekiah was a good king. Not only did he do those religious things, but he also had great technological advances for the nation of Judah. Hezekiah was somewhat of an engineer. He organized underground aqueducts to bring water into the capital city of Jerusalem. You realize that Jerusalem is not located near any waterway. And so Hezekiah found some nearby sources of water and he had enough ingenuity to be able to construct those underground aqueducts. Not only was that done, but he would build villages and parks. He built up not only the treasury, but also the army of Judah. 
Hezekiah was a good king. When he says to the Lord, remember, O Lord, how I've walked before you. The imagery of walking throughout the Bible is the imagery of how I've lived my life. Remember how I've lived my life. Remember how I've, how I've tried to be faithful unto you. Remember the things that I've done in your name. Remember all of these things, O Lord, for I followed you wholeheartedly. I've done what is good in your sight, what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Hezekiah is not saying that God owes him a favor because even a, a life well lived is no merit for mercy. Don't ever forget that. A life well lived is no merit for mercy. But still, Hezekiah prays unto the Lord, realizing his dedication, his devotion unto the Lord Almighty. He says, God, please, please remember how I've walked, wholeheartedly devoted unto you. Before Isaiah could make it off the palace steps, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. Go back and say to King Hezekiah, this is what the Lord says. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I'll add 15 years to your life. And I'll defend this city. The Assyrians, they won't invade this city. I will defend it. Here's a sign to you, Hezekiah. I will cause the impossible to become possible. The sun that cast its shadow that's gone down 10 steps on the stairway of Ahaz, I'll cause it to go in reverse. I'll do the impossible so you'll know I'm good for it. Isaiah, go back, tell the king. Can you imagine what Hezekiah felt like when Isaiah came back? He came back and said, oh, king, there's something else I need to tell you. Oh, no, don't tell me anything. No, no, you're going to like this. Okay, well, then tell me. Tell me clearly. What is it? God heard your prayers. God saw your tears. Tears are liquid love that we offer up unto the Lord. To say that he saw tears is not to say that you and I just have to be emotional before God in order to grab his attention, but that communicates the authenticity of the one doing the praying. That Isaiah and Hezekiah are very sincere. Hezekiah is praying unto the Lord with sincerity of heart. He is sincere and honest. He is crying before the Lord. The Lord has heard your prayer. He has seen your tears. He's going to add 15 years to your life. He will defend this city. Those big bad Assyrians, they won't destroy Jerusalem. And God's even going to give you a sign that he's good on it. He's going to do the impossible. He's going to cause the shadow of the sun to retreat 10 steps. He's going to give you 15 more years. Can you imagine how Hezekiah lived that next decade and a half. Every day he realized today's a bonus. <laughs> I shouldn't be here, but today's a bonus. Today is a gift. You know, every day that you have is a bonus. God doesn't owe us a thing. He doesn't owe us tomorrow. He doesn't owe us tomorrow's tomorrow. Tomorrow. 
Yet if, if we live today, if we wake up tomorrow, we need to wake up and say, this is a bonus. Every day is a bonus from you, oh God. It is a gift. And I promise you, Hezekiah did not waste that decade and a half in frivolous, selfish living. Hezekiah is unlike us in one respect. He not only knew his birth date, but he also knew his death date. That didn't cause fear. That caused great faith. I live in the Lord and I die in the Lord. Every day I have is a gift from God. I'm sure that Hezekiah lived his life realizing that every day is a precious blessing and a gift from the Lord. So every person he saw, he hugged them as if it was the last time he was going to see them. Every interaction, every conversation, he thought to himself, listen, time is ticking away. My time is short. I want to make the most of what I've got. My friends, you and I ought to live every day just like that. The Lord said, I'll give you 15 years. I don't know what Hezekiah asked for. I don't know if he asked for five years, 10 years, 15. I don't know what he asked for. Scripture doesn't tell us. But I promise you this much. God responded in massive mercy because God always responds in massive mercy. Whatever Hezekiah asked for, God gave him more than what he asked for. He said, not only am I going to lengthen your days, that's really what he asked for. We don't know how long he wanted to lengthen his days, but he just said, Lord, remember me, lengthen my days. And the Lord says, not only am I going to lengthen your days, but even the days that you're here, I'm going to defend and bless. I'll defend the city. Assyria, they won't come down against you, not on my watch. You do realize that the Assyrian army invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and eventually destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And they threatened the southern kingdom of Judah, but they never got there. Why? Because God defended Jerusalem. God defended Judah. In fact, on one night when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, was making his way and breathing murderous threats down the necks of the people living in Jerusalem, it is God who defends the city. And in one night, without Judah ever launching one arrow, God destroys and kills, executes 185,000 of the Assyrian troops. The next day, Judah wakes up. The next day, Hezekiah wakes up and he looks out the window and 185,000 of the enemy called the Assyrians were dead. Who did that? God did that. All the while, he's reminding Hezekiah, I'll defend this city. I'll fight your battles. I am your God. You just live for me. The Lord says to the king, I'll give you a sign so that you know I'm good for it. I'll do the impossible. I'll cause the sun to retreat. I will turn back the clock. And creation was obedient to the creator. And the sun retreated those 10 steps that it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. Does prayer change God? I would say no. And yes. I think what I would say is this. That our God, who is changelessly sovereign, is genuinely affected 
by the prayers of his children according to his great mercy. In his book entitled Prayer, Philip Yancey concludes with this story. He says, there are often times that I'll get an email, I'll get uh, a letter in the mail from a stranger, somebody in prison, somebody from another country. They're asking me for help. And there are times, Yancey writes, that I do my best to help them. But many times, I don't do much of anything. I refuse to get involved. But if I ever have a letter or an email or a phone call from my nephew or my neighbor or my family member or a close friend and they have a need, I'll do everything I can to meet that need. And then he writes these words, because relationship ups the urgency. I respond to those most eagerly that I have the deepest relationship with. Relationship ups the urgency. So he says, in my prayer life, I cannot tell God what to do. I cannot change God. It is God who is sovereign. He gets the last word. He gets every word. He can do whatever he wants to do. And yet, because of our relationship, it ups the urgency so that he invites me to come and to cast all my cares upon him. He responds to me out of his relationship with me. So I pray, Yancey writes, because relationship ups the urgency. Friend, do you have that kind of relationship with God? Oh, not that you're telling God what to do. You can't. He's sovereign, changelessly sovereign. But do you have that relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ where the Lord says, because of my love for you, because of my massive mercy towards you, I'll move heaven and earth. To give you the desires of your heart. And God says to those to which he has a relationship. I've given you a sign. It's the impossible. And by that impossible sign I tell you that everything is possible. Because 2,000 years ago. Jesus, the God man, came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He went outside the hill, uh, went outside the city of Jerusalem, climbed the hill called Calvary with a cross beam strapped to his back. And Jesus died for your sins and for mine. Why? So that you and I could have an eternal relationship with God. And Jesus died in our stead. He died in our place. He took the whipping that we deserved. And God placed him into our tomb. And a stone was rolled in front of it. And on the third day, God did the impossible on the third day God raised his son on the third day the tomb is empty the stone was rolled away not to get Jesus out but to get us in the tomb is empty God has done the impossible why to tell us that I have declared a relationship with you and that relationship ups the urgency friend you cannot tell God what to do he is changelessly sovereign. He knows the future as certainly as he knows the past. Yet in ways that I do not fully understand, I can tell you that God is genuinely affected by the prayers of his children. 
I can't explain that. I don't understand that. I just know it to be true. That God is genuinely affected by your prayers. And it's all because of his massive mercy. So just like the hymn writer said, I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. For he ever loves and cares for his own. So I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear these burdens alone. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. Jesus will help me. Jesus alone. How can you sing that? Because you've got a relationship with Jesus. And you've got to tell somebody. And that somebody you tell is the one who paid a debt he did not owe because you had a debt that you could not pay. Relationship ups the urgency. So this morning I ask, do you have that kind of relationship? If you don't, you can today. You come to him by faith. As soon as we sing, you come down this aisle, take one of the ministers by the hand and say, hey, I need to know that God. Maybe you do have that relationship and you come in here heavy loaded. And maybe you just need to come here, kneel at the altar and cast your cares upon the one who cares for you. You're not telling God what to do, but somehow God longs to hear the prayers of his children and he invites you and you and you and you to come. And to pray. Because our God is changelessly sovereign. Yet he's genuinely affected by the prayers of his children according to his great mercy. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we give you this invitation. And Lord, if there's one here that does not have a relationship with you, I pray that today will be the day of salvation. Lord, if there's somebody here and they know you, but yet, Lord, uh, we are heavy with concern and burdens. Oh, Lord, out of that relationship, let us come and cast all of our cares upon you. God, we don't understand it, but we know that somehow, some way, that you who are changeless, you are affected by the prayers of your beloved children. So, God, please hear your children as we come praying. In Jesus' name, amen.